This is one of the center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. My name is Barbara Iverson. I teach interpersonal skills and intercultural management at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. And I will be your moderator for tonight's discussion. Today, we are looking at the issue of cyber conflicts, mediation, and peace building. And we're hoping to discuss not only the problems, but examine what solutions might look like. So now I'm really pleased to introduce our three panelists. Richard and Salzan and Sylvia are with us from all different places around the world. Welcome to the three of you. So first off, Richard Wilcox is joining us from Rome, where it is sunny and warm. And I am very jealous because although Berlin is sunny, it is definitely not warm. Thanks, Barb, and thanks so much for, for having us online today. I'm one of the co-founders of Digital Equity, and an organization devoted to getting greater equity in the, in the digital world. Two years ago, I helped establish the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, a private diplomacy organization in Geneva's cyber mediation program. And I also teach cyber conflict and risk at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna here in Italy. I want to just start out by, by laying out what I think are sort of two distinct realms of conflict when it comes to cyberspace. One is sort of the, the code warfare, countries using actors, using code to attack other people's digital infrastructure to disrupt programs. That's sort of the classic, we're trying to shut down power grids, trying to interfere with air traffic control, interfering with industrial control systems, but also military on military targets, uh, in air defense systems, and then that sort of thing. That's one bucket we'll look at, and you'll quickly think there might not be a whole lot for um, civil society to do in that space, but there actually is. The second is information warfare, sort of using the digital space to influence political thought, to disinform, to create confrontation, to escalate confrontation. And there again, there are, I think, very important things that civil society can uh, contribute. But let's start with the first bucket. And in that bucket, you look at it at the first glance and say, oh, these things are very closely tied in with the intelligence services, because in order to undertake a, a cyber attack, you will have to penetrate the systems of other side, which is what you do for intelligence gathering. So it'll be very much in the dark, and it'd be very difficult for civil society actors to even engage on this topic. And that was the presumption that we also started on when we began engaging on this topic at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. But what we, we did find is, though, that there is a lot that can be done that doesn't require you to be that deep down into the technical knowledge that is privileged and, and, and kept very much secret. This was confidence building measures. And the reason that's so important in, in cyber is because these cyber weapons really are sort of the, the weapons of first resort. They're relatively cheap. They can be remotely operated. They can be finely calibrated. And as such, they lend themselves to the initiation of conflict. And it's hard to interpret them because there's just such a new phenomenon. So it's very important that countries that have issues, countries in the, around the Persian Gulf or countries across the Atlantic, have channels which they can communicate their concerns in, in cyber. At a minimum, their cyber emergency response teams should know each other and be able to, to, to reach out to each other to say, something happened here. Can you tell me anything about this? So at least there's, there's a channel, right? And there's a technically competent channel. You think it's obvious, it's not. And it's a relatively, it's, it's such a new space. In having experts talk to each other, it also helps establish the norms of behavior. And people are quick to put down normative processes and say, oh, it'll take 20, 30 years and there's, there's no legal clout behind it. So what does it matter? It matters in the signaling game. If one country is attacked by another, 
and saying, oh, this is something pretty egregious, and everybody kind of agrees on that, that matters because that'll shape the response to it. That'll shape the ability to work with others. That'll shape your, your own motivation, commitment to respond to it. And those things need to be understood in order for this kind of tit-for-tat game that characterizes cyber conflict. Because you can't really defend against cyber attack very well because we're sitting on a massive digital infrastructure that was designed for commercial reasons and for speed rather than for security, very slowly changing. So you can't really defend against it. You can't deter it by issuing stark threats. If you attack us, our electricity, some terrible things will happen. It's also unclear. You really only attack it for a day. You can reverse it and stop it again, unlock systems that you might have, have taken. So the only way of really sort of fighting cyber conflict, the way cyber conflict really is fought, is this tit for tat between uh, countries. And for that to not escalate wildly out of control, it needs solid channels of communications. And there, civil society can help just in the way that civil society also helped in the early days of the of the nuclear development, when this thing is the Pugwash Conference, brought experts together to create uh, mutual understandings of how things work, how things are understood on various sides. So that on the using code for warfighting, essentially, side where we found that there is, in fact, a role for a, for a civil society. On the part of information conflict, there's, again, there's sort of really two sides to this. There is a role for civil society in engaging on hate speech, on conflict-driving discourse in, on social media in the, in the digital space. And then there is sort of using digital tools in order to facilitate mediation in conflicts that are of a, have already sort of gone into a, a physical nature. When it comes to, uh, to information, uh, we'll find there's some supremely interesting developments in the way that you can use AI to, um, to recognize and identify and be, also begin then to develop counters to hate speech that is spread through um, social media. And the reason that's important is because it is, otherwise the quantity is just overwhelming any, any effort at, at human moderation. Efforts in that are moving very rapidly. And even to the point where the system then divides uh, counter arguments. And some of you may have seen sort of the, the IBM's project debater where the, the artificial intelligence itself, based on the information that has been fed, that has been fed, makes counter arguments. And you can very rapidly see of the next two, three, four years that this will become much more common when it comes to dealing with disinformation, designing counter disinformation campaigns. The last bit on this side really is using social media for purposes of mediation as a support to traditional mediation process, which allows you to bring in actors that would have been difficult to engage, bring in more stakeholders across society into a, a peace process. And there, I think the, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, you will have seen in the, the materials for the session, has made significant contributions, especially in the Libyan context of supporting the uh, national dialogue a few years ago through a social media exercise, and also in supporting the ongoing political consultations to bring in stakeholders that might otherwise be, be excluded. A final thought on the role of, of social media, which is we have to be cognizant that what we're trying to work with are systems that were designed not for civil, politically productive discourse, but for maximizing advertising revenue. And there are efforts out to try to devise platforms that facilitate politically civil discourse in such a way that it leads to peaceful and constructive outcomes. And the VTaiwan platform is, stands out in that context where you can't comment on other people's posts. Posts are grouped together. Posts are prioritized in a sense that attracts support from others. So rather than attracting the greatest controversy, you move up in the terms of the recommendation if others support your positions, especially others from the whole different positions initially. So there's really interesting platforms that are being designed and are evolving now that can help move towards civil productive discourse 
away from forcing us to conduct political discourse in a space that is designed to maximize advertising revenue rather than good politics. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for sharing all of that and giving us an idea of what you've been involved in. So the next panel discussionist here is Saozan Gaucher, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us, morning your time. Would you share a bit about yourself and the work that you do, please? Thank you, Barbara. I'm so pleased to be here with you and with such an impressive panel. I started my career in journalism. I was working with CNN in conflict areas, and then I joined the UN, and I worked on multiple issues regarding development, humanitarian, but also peacekeeping and peacemaking across mainly the Middle East and North Africa, but I also did work for a short period in the Ukraine. I completely agree with Richard on the risks of social media. I'm going to talk about social media and strategic political communications. Working in conflict areas, you're required to have several skills. You're required to have political analytical skills, political advocacy techniques, and tremendous experience in communications and marketing, as well as a strategic vision and the ability to design and plan how to reach the strategic vision. Social media has a lot of risks, and we've heard that from Richard today. I'm also happy to talk about other risks and how to mitigate the risks later if you want, but it's here and it's here to stay. And it's a tool that's available to strategic political communicators, as well as conflict parties, peace practitioners, and the public at large. So today, everyone can and is engaging in both peace and war efforts. So we have to be able to capitalize as peacemakers on the strength of social media while putting mitigating measures in place. I will refer here to the positives of social media and how social media can help peace practitioners advance peace. But before proceeding, I want to caution one small thing is that when working in conflict areas, social media cannot be used in isolation. It's only effective if it complements and is complemented by face-to-face -face programming and activities. And with that said, I will discuss the value of social media in three key areas, data gathering and analysis, advancing peace narratives, and increased participation and fostering inclusive dialogues. So let's take them one by one. From my experience, when done correctly, social media can be a very effective tool for data gathering and analysis. It can be used for mapping political positions of different stakeholders, tracking military movements of conflict parties and their types of armaments, as well as monitoring the public's view regarding recent political developments, security developments, and the peace process at large. However, it is important to keep in mind that the setup of the social media monitoring, and we just heard that from Richard as well, requires many things to be effective. I'm going to focus here on three things. First, it demands time and resources, both financial and human. As Richard said, there's an overwhelming amount of data on social media. One needs to separate the important from the unusable or worse fake. And it's getting more and more difficult to recognize the fake these days, and it will get even more difficult. Building on the first, the second point is to keep in mind is to be successful, one needs to be able to assess source reliability. So which channels to monitor, when, why, and for what kind of information. So if I want information about this specific area, who do I go to, who that I can trust? Third, a mapping of social media influencers is very highly recommended. I'm going to talk about it here, but I'll also talk about it later when I'm talking about narrative framing. The mappings of social media influencers is good because you can get from them information, but you have to also understand, like the reliability of resources, when to get this information and when not to get this information. I just want to reiterate what I said earlier, and that is 
to what I said earlier is that we need to understand that it's crucial that social media is only one tool to complement other data gathering tools. So everything you get on social media must, must, I cannot stress this enough, be verified offline. And this happens to journalists, they use it, and as well as peace practitioners, they have to use it. You cannot trust what you just get on social media, even if you trust the source itself. And I'll point to a quick example here from Libya. The United Nations, during the battles of September 2018, used social media to track armed groups' movement on the ground and form a, like a preliminary assessment of which militia was responsible for which attack. Of course, this needed still to be verified, as I said earlier, but at least social media gives you an inclination of where to begin, where's the entry point that you can go there and try to get information. So it helps you to shorten the time period that is required to get to where you want to get. The next slide, framing of peace narratives. Social media, as we know, all of us, helps peace practitioners and everybody that, to engage directly with the community and to receive direct feedback. For us, it's important because it helps us evaluate our message. Is it reaching the right audience? Is it not reaching the right audience? And therefore, it enables us to change course if need be. If done proactively and in a timely manner, in my experience, social media can help peace practitioners influence perspectives in favor of dialogue, violence reduction, and ceasefire. With that said, it's important to keep in mind that this is a complex process and may not succeed from the get-go. So multiple tries may be required. Also from my experience as peace practitioners, our impacts in shaping narratives is limited in duration. It's only a matter of time before the narrative changes again. Money plays a big factor in influencing narratives. And unfortunately, peace practitioners are not the richest kids on the block. But what it does is that it gives us time to formulate other plans. Why, like this limited duration helps us reset and plan and provide other programming and activities. What I mentioned earlier regarding influencers, social media influencers, it would be good to use them to help advance our message. But even with here, we have to make sure who are we partnering with on which message for which audience, because using the wrong social media influencer will backfire. I just want to give a quick example from Syria. In 2012, the UN used YouTube in the aftermath of the Hula massacre. And this use of the YouTube was accredited for helping to convince China and Russia to support the council's condemnation of Syria for using heavy weaponry against its civilians. They condemned the government for that. It was an all too rare example of the Security Council sending a unified message on Syria. So we succeeded once, limited duration. But it was a big success because it was the first time that they were able to come to a resolution vis-a-vis -vis Syria, and the only time. I have other examples, including countering disinformation and hate speech, and others, if you're interested, please ask during the Q&A or during the discussion. So the third point, advancing inclusive and participatory processes. Social media is increasingly used to help shape mediation agendas, complement face-to-face mediation processes, and foster dialogue processes around specific issues. It's being used from Kenya and Libya to Egypt, Sri Lanka, Ukraine, just to mention a few, and Yemen, they had an excellent digital platform there built to promote online dialogue among communities. In Egypt, the UN and the Arab League conducted youth dialogues on socioeconomic priorities, as well as issues related to combating violent extremism. These dialogues engaged over 800,000 Arab youth, and they produced uh, recommendations that were then included in UN and Arab League programming and activities. I'm currently working on trying to use the narrative approach to advance peace processes 
I'm doing a PhD on that, trying to see if we can extend the limited duration and how to use media, including social media as a whole, in advancing peace narratives and combating conflict narratives. Thank you, Barb. Thank you so much for that. And our third panelist today is Sylvia Brown. She is currently near Manchester in England. Hi, everybody. Assalamu alaikum. And I'm um, Sylvia Brown. I'm conflict advisor from Islamic Relief Worldwide. So I'm here today really just to give you a kind of flavor of some practical examples of how digital conflict prevention and peace building um, works in practice in some of the contexts that Islamic Relief is involved in. So just to give you a brief overview really of where Islamic Relief works on peace building or social cohesion programming, Islamic Relief works with grassroots communities and civil society groups on traditionally humanitarian and development work. But this is also kind of the level or the area that we work with communities on peace building as well, which is something that we started to do a little bit more of in the last few years. Mostly we work in fragile contexts and often in post-conflict contexts. And our vision of human security, that our vision is very much a holistic vision of human security. We aim for kind of more just and equal societies with more inclusive conflict management mechanisms. And our sort of unique selling points to communities is that because we are a faith-based organization, we do have quite a high degree of trust among the communities, the Muslim communities that we work in compared to secular organizations. We're also perceived to have greater cultural proximity to Muslim communities. They feel that we get them, we understand their culture and their view of the world. And we have really great access in hard to reach areas. We've implemented our conflict prevention and peace building work so far in Kenya, Pakistan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Yemen, Sudan and Jordan. And I'm going to tell you about our digital conflict prevention work and peace building, but we just to recognize that we do also do a, a lot of face-to-face, -face. probably most of our peace building work is face-to-face. -face. The two methods really complement each other, but I'll just talk here about our digital work. So in terms of conflict early warning, so I'll give you a good example from Kenya, in the northeast of Kenya, where the Somali clans tend to clash quite a bit over scarce resources like land and water. Clan disputes can be really, really violent and often they're triggered though by quite small issues. So we helped community groups to set up a WhatsApp group to share information about disputes so that they could be resolved before they escalated. So typically, if you can resolve the dispute within 24 to 48 hours, then it won't escalate and cause a much greater loss of life and loss of damage to property. And WhatsApp was brilliant because it enabled people, especially women who had lower levels of literacy in the area, to record voice messages and listen to the voice messages of other people. So they were able to engage in that conflict early warning system in a way that they probably never had done before. So it's been a very powerful conflict early warning tool in Kenya. Sometimes we want to support civil society groups to tackle prejudice or negative stereotyping of other groups in their communities. So in Mindanao in the Philippines, for example, we ran a Facebook campaign to address origin myths and negative stereotypes between Muslims and indigenous people. And we also used our social media platforms to give influential community leaders and faith leaders greater reach with their messaging on conflict prevention and prejudice reduction, because sometimes they're just used to talking in a mosque or in madrasas, um, but through using our social media platforms, they can reach a greater audience, a wider audience, women, young people, people who might not necessarily always be present in their face-to-face -face events. 
And finally, the other type of conflict prevention work that we've done is educating people on misinformation on social media. That is a constant priority, a constant issue. I'm sure we're all aware of it. Yeah, it's a constant challenge, but it's been important. And one participant on the call today is our peace builder from Indonesia, who did some excellent work on training youth groups and college students in Indonesia on understanding social media hoaxes and misinformation and maybe how to counter some of that. In terms of our digital peace building work, we supported youth groups from different clans in Kenya and different tribes in Northwest Pakistan to join up on WhatsApp groups so that they can share information among themselves to build trust and to counter rumours quickly and support each other in their community peace building work. So very similar to sort of conflict prevention work, but using the tool to then work on community peace building. We know that often young people and women's voices are marginalised in peace processes, elite peace processes, but elite peace processes also need community engagement for them to succeed. So we have lent our social media platforms like Facebook to local youth peace advocates in the Philippines in the format of a social media takeover for a month. And we've also used our social media channels just simply to publicize some of the face-to-face peace building events that are taking part in the community that might be led by us, might be led by others. The final thing that I'd just like to point out is some of the strengths and risks that we've come across as a result of our digital peace building work. And I'm sure you and, and the other members of the panel can list a lot more than this, but in terms of the strengths, Because some areas are incredibly hard to access with face-to-face interventions, and also face-to-face interventions are much more expensive to run, it's brilliant being able to reach people through social media. It's not a replacement, it is a complement, but we are able to engage more people in those hard-to-reach areas through social media. Also by using old technology like radio, it's not just social media, not just new technology. And the accessibility, as I mentioned before, even people who are not literate can use some types of social media. And they also love listening to the radio as well. That's that's another key part of our peace building work. But people whose movements are more restricted as well, like women, people with disabilities, people living in refugee camps, they can access social media interventions on peace building. In terms, everyone has a voice. So the fact that everyone has a potential to have a voice on social media, that's it's a great strength. It's a great equalizer in some ways, but it's also a weakness because it weakens the power of honest, truthful journalism and it can lead to all sorts of dangerous and false narratives being circulated. So we know there's both strengths and challenges with that. But the speed with which people can access information is an incredible benefit as well. In terms of the risk, quite quickly then, um, The admins in domestic counter-terror legislation, the admins of WhatsApp groups are often legally responsible for the content produced by others. And so that's really scary, something to really work out, I think, with legislators. Dealing with misinformation on social media, we've already talked about it, that's a huge issue. Dealing with government, you know, there seems to be a real rise of authoritarian governments and restrictions on civil society space. And that's, that's really concerning. Yes, we need some kind of better legislation to avoid this cowboy kind of free for all of the internet, but human rights defenders and activists also need their free speech protected too. 
And that's not yet been sorted out, I don't think. And then the online harassment and bullying of activists and peace builders on social media is something that's a great concern. We haven't actually experienced it ourselves, probably because the community actors that we support are not very high profile. Our experience has been incredibly positive so far, but I'm well aware of it as a really key safeguarding issue. So that's just a kind of a flavour from me of how this might work in practice in some of the Muslim communities, especially that Islamic Relief supports. Sylvia, thank you so much. Really interesting to see those examples and to hear from each of you sort of the different platforms within social media. Sometimes we say social media and everyone thinks Facebook, but not necessarily WhatsApp and even things like TikTok. And I'm curious if there are... Any examples you have that you haven't yet shared about maybe use of social media in a way that we perhaps haven't thought of yet or um, that you haven't shared to give people just another view of of how social media can be used? Because I think we understand about information, communicating with different people. Does one of you have an example of that? In Libya, we use social media to invite and to bring people around a table to come to an agreement on a ceasefire. Also in September, after we did the tracking and everything, everything that was related to the ceasefire was done via Twitter and Facebook. Even the announcement of the meeting was done via Twitter and Facebook. We went to this meeting not knowing if people were going to show up or not. But the fact that we were there, the UN was there, whoever showed up was going to be considered a partner on the table. And everybody who doesn't show up might be sanctioned by the UN Security Council. That's why I say you can't just do it by yourself. I can't do it as self But once you have like a backing behind you that people are want to participate, they want to have a voice, they want to have a say in something, they may be sanctioned if they don't show up. We were there and they all showed up. And we did actually come to an agreement on a ceasefire. Of course, it lasted two weeks. But then in, within these two weeks, we were able to have other processes set up in place. And once the ceasefire crashed again, we were able to pick up through the other processes. But at least with this example, it managed, it succeeded. One of the very few examples where everything was done via social media, and I know I warned against that. I said, if it has to be complemented, but we did complement right after. So it was like the process was built on with other face-to-face stuff. No, that's really, really interesting to hear and exciting that it worked so well. But as that tool just to communicate and put the word out there and then see who shows up and they all did. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's also building the narrative around it. So it wasn't just the one tweet, but it was like the whole the whole week was building towards that moment. So that's why I'm saying strategic planning and design and every like a vision to towards something and having a carrot and a stick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having motivation behind why they would want to to have a seat at that table and what might happen to them if they didn't. Absolutely. Is there another example someone wants to share, Richard? Yeah, we have a very different understanding of how conflict dynamics in social media, and especially surrounding hate speech, work on Facebook versus Twitter versus Reddit. Twitter and Reddit make their data available to independent researchers, and hence we have a much better understanding. And most of actually of our serious academic work that is, has policy implications derives from Twitter analysis. Facebook does not make that data available to independent researchers. And essentially, when it comes to the dynamics of hate speech and conflict on Facebook, we're very much in the dark. That's actually incredibly helpful to know. And I'm not sure how many of us actually were aware of that. So thanks for pointing that out. 
shifting slightly, the theme that I heard from the three of you significantly is that social media is used very much to mitigate escalation. So attacks or events are very hard to prevent. However, social media can be used as a way to prevent them from becoming much, much larger very, very quickly. But I'm curious about the concept of peace building, which is the other side to that in a sense that it's more proactive and less reactive in a way. And I'm curious how you see the role of social media within peace building specifically. And even if you can address it, how someone might learn to develop skills in actually building peace in their locations through social media. I think what is very important for me that I found that social media can help with is, as we said, everybody's engaged in social media. There are over more than 56% of the population, of the world population is on social media. And now with smartphones, there are more and more people that have access and will have more access. And you also have the majority of the people, the biggest chunk of people who are on social media are youth. And these are the people that you want to reach now and in the future. From my experience, the best way to use it is to foster inclusive dialogues and to foster dialogues that can feed into peace-building processes. So for example, in Yemen, it was used, in Ukraine, it was used, in Libya, it was used. We actually partnered with the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue on having dialogues that actually will complement face-to-face meetings. Even in Syria, it was used, where you have either women participating in the designing the peace process or submitting recommendations. In Libya, the whole population at large, we've partnered with mayors in every single town, small or big, to come together to see what are their national priorities for the national conference, what are the issues that they need to discuss when it comes around building a whole peace process for the country. What are the Ten Commandments, let's say, for a constitution, for a social contract? And these are the kind of discussions that you would have moving forward via social media. It allows you to reach people that you would not have reached previously. You can go to rural areas where you don't end up usually. But again, as Sylvia said, there are lots of risks. For example, social media does create discrepancies. So you have more men versus women participating on social media. So you have a gender gap. You have the richer people are more powerful over social media. If you focus on just English, you're going to have the elites rather than population. So how do you build these platforms is very important to make sure that you're reaching a more inclusive, representative proportion of the population. So for me, I see that social media can support peace processes, like official formal peace processes or, or informal peace processes, but can also support the enabling environment for peace. And the enabling environment is things like good governance, transparent, accountable governance, a supportive media environment, an open civil society space. There are many, many things that make our democracies and countries peaceful can be shifted on into social media platforms just as much as kind of traditional platforms. So there are so many different areas in which you can apply social media to promote a more kind of accountable, transparent, fair, equal society. And then more specifically in terms of just mass community mobilization for supporting peace processes. You know, it's great for that as well. It's a mass communication method, just like radio used to be. Yeah, thank you. Richard, do you want to add for on the peace building? Sure. Building on, on Sylvia's observation here, when it comes to peace building, the engagement mobilization is really no different than political advertising in the context of a domestic political campaign. 
And we've only started in a couple of years ago for the first time really to sort of to try sort of a more segmented approach to advertising for in support of the peace process by targeting different groups differently, sort of a specific sort of messaging for middle-aged and above men or women with families with children or young people under, uh, under, <laughs> under 25. But micro-targeting is a much more powerful tool than sort of general mass mass media. And as societies that are more digitally sophisticated, as most all are becoming, uh, generate these databases, that the same thing that advertisers would use for their micro-targeting or political campaigns would use in Europe or the United States, that micro-targeting can be harnessed for in support of peace-building exercises in a much more sophisticated and perhaps much more effective way than we have been able to bring to bear so far. Remember, sort of in the, in the 90s, we had sort of support jingles for the UN processes in the, in the Balkans that were sort of quite cringy, right? And that nobody really took terribly serious, kind of embarrassing almost. But we're not quite there yet. But I think in the coming years, being able to advertise peace as effectively as a political campaign or as commercial endeavors will become possible. And there's some, some opportunities in that. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that. And perhaps, Sylvia, because you had talked about WhatsApp groups, this might be something that you could answer. How safe is WhatsApp to allow communication between individuals that are already at risk? So are there drawbacks to using WhatsApp in that way? Or what have you found? Yeah, of course. Of course there are. The, the concern is particularly state hacking and observation of activists using social media to communicate with each other. It's a constant challenge, isn't it? Which platform is the safest and which one hasn't yet been hacked? How do we deal with that? Like what we do with communities is communities are very, very good at finding the language to talk about very difficult issues amongst themselves, not necessarily using the direct words, but by using sort of synonyms, different words to refer to something. So they're good at finding the terminology to speak about things more sensitively. And they're also much more adept at figuring out which issues they can talk about and talk about among people outside their family and which ones they shouldn't talk about because it's probably too dangerous for them. And of course, we should always support people to kind of navigate those sensitivities in the best possible way that they can and and help people to sort of try and stay as well aware of those issues to protect their own safety as they possibly can. But ultimately, you know, it's some activists will choose to take that risk because they feel that, you know, they, they need to do that for the greater good. It's, I don't have an easy answer, though. It's, it is a constant challenge, right? I wouldn't actually think that there is an easy answer to that because different platforms would create different risks for people depending on the situation. But thank you. I have heard that Facebook now has a new kind of security feature that people can activate, which is like a a two-way or multi-factor authentication for their accounts so that it kind of makes it less accessible, less susceptible to hacking. It's particularly available to human rights defenders and journalists, which is great. That's very welcome, but, you know, much more needs to be done and by the other platforms as well. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is this is really quite something because I think for many of us, we we look at our own privacy issues with social media and we have our own concerns for various reasons. What does Facebook allow? What does it not? How many social media platforms does Facebook in fact own? But I think some of these issues that lie beneath the surface, like what Richard was bringing up before and some of the questions that you're raising, these are in fact completely different issues for social media platforms to be addressing. And the question becomes, 
who is pressing these issues onto the social media platforms to make them aware that, you know, you've got your American questions about what does Facebook know about me, but that's quite different than someone in an at-risk area. So how are those battles being fought for that information and, and for that sort of security? Yeah, I don't know, Sazan might be better to speak about this now, because like, you know, if it's up to governments to legislate for social media platforms, they're going to want to legislate to have all the access they can get. But users are the ones maybe who should have the power to buy absconding from social media platforms. That's the greatest power we do have if those platforms aren't meeting our needs. And people are leaving and moving on to Telegram uh, instead of WhatsApp in certain countries because of security. The encryption debate is sort of eternal one, and, and, and what privileges or rights social media companies will are, are willing to, to give governments is one of the biggest questions of our times. And, and you, you saw the decision on, on Facebook to, to maintain uh, the ban, for example, of an outright exclusion of an actor, which, to be fair, is something that should be decided by a proper court in a, in a constitutional setting rather than by a company. But the companies have this power. Just one very practical note, <laughs> perhaps because I'm not giving a very, I don't think, there's a, I don't think there is a good answer to this problem, but when you're using WhatsApp, your communications are, in fact, end-to-end encrypted. Your attachments are not. And what researchers do is you can trace the, the flow of attachments back and forth and sort of from that infer in what, uh, what the issue is and, and, and what the network around that issue is without having to go into the, the message itself, which you, which you can't. So for those activists around there, you know, to, be, to be aware that those attachments are, are a bit of a giveaway. Yeah. yeah, I also heard, I'm not sure, Richard, you'll know more, but with WhatsApp, if you actually back up on iCloud, then whatever you encrypted becomes de-encrypted. So I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but I was told that if you want to send secret information, send it on WhatsApp and then delete it before it's backed up. Don't back it up. From what we're trying to do, and we're, do, we're doing that in, in Iraq right now, it's just the beginning of a process. So I have no results to report back. But And this is also something that I'm discussing with an NGO in the U.S., is to develop systems where people take more control of the social media platform. And how is that done? Is basically to have an NGO, intergovernmental organization in a country that would work with, let's say, Facebook, for example, most places where in Iraq, Facebook was the, had the highest level of users. So you'd bring in Facebook then, and you would have a discussion where you bring social media influencers from both sides. The first thing we did is that we established this platform that goes in and every time there's information that's on, online, they double check it, they verify it. And if it's not right, they will put the right news. So that started from that point. And then from there, we were thinking, of, okay, let's bring social media influencers, those who are spreading correct information versus those who are spreading incorrect information and have separate meetings with them and Facebook and try to provide policy guidelines for Iraq specifically. So what stipulates hate speech and bring in to the discussion also human rights organizations, bring in people who actually monitor hate speech online. So you try to establish a network within Facebook where if something does appear online immediately, somebody reports back to Facebook and Facebook takes down that post before it goes viral and sanctions people who are spreading misinformation. It's still at the very early stages, but it's trying to gain back control from these companies. And as you understand, this is going to be a very difficult process because these companies don't want to let go of this control. But it's an interaction of starting a dialogue where Facebook, in this sense, and Twitter in the US, because this is what Trump was using predominantly, is not independent in deciding what content is spread online. Fingers crossed. I don't have anything to report back on, but we'll keep you posted. 
Okay. But I think one is quite interesting looking specifically at cyber conflicts to elaborate on when and how states can negotiate or mediate agreements and establish cyber conduct norms with one another. I've heard sort of some some of this in what you've been saying, but wonder is there movement toward norms in using social media? For instance, the situation that Sazan talked about in Libya are our states talking with each other? I mean, Richard, you talked about having channels where people could, in fact, communicate with one another. Like, how is this happening and, and who's creating them and, and who's able to yeah. join me? Right. First, so far, there's only one big agreement between states when it comes to their engagement in, in cyber. And that's the US-China agreement from 2015, which has fallen in, in abeyance as, as other issues stimulate that conflict. But did bring down very significantly uh, malicious cyber acts between the two. And that agreement was largely driven by the private sector in the US that pushed pressure on the government saying, look, we have to somehow engage with China on these, these issues of the use of cyber espionage and, and intellectual property rights uh, um, primarily. There's three significant forms in which these, these cyber norms are, are discussed. So the, the, and the first one is actually sort of a private forum called the International Commission of Stability of, of Cyberspace, which has put out sort of a number of, of recommendations. And that involves civil society actors as well. None of these norms will sweep you off your feet as like, you know, don't attack critical infrastructure or hospitals or, or, or whatnot, right? But again, I mean, the, the evolution of, of norms in humanitarian law it took decades, not longer to, to evolve. So this is an, an, an important starting point. And then there is sort of the institutionalized form of that is, is, is called the open-ended working group at the United Nations, where norms are, are also being discussed and there are sort of UN accredited NGOs are, are, are able to participate or observe in those processes. That's a, a much slower process, of course, but it also has essentially greater legitimacy attached to it. And then there's the, the OSCE's effort at creating uh, confidence building measures in, in cyber. And as I think two years ago, they try to verify how far those confidence building measures has gone in terms of at least sort of the counterparts being able to find each other. And it's turned out that you know, half of the numbers, telephone numbers were dated, nobody answered. And so that needs continuous efforts. And similar efforts are, are also underway in other regions, notably uh, sort of in, in, in the Persian Gulf, where countries are beginning to sort of have regular dialogue between their respective cyber authorities in order to ensure that they can at least talk to each other. But that so it's a bit of the, the landscape of cyber dialogue and, and, when, and mediation when it comes to the conflict between states. Yeah, that's very helpful to understand. Thank you for that. I'm inspired by hearing each of you talk about how social media can be used in such a positive way, not only the de-escalation of conflicts, but also in creating atmospheres that create peace building situations. And I hope for everyone who's joined us that that has also been true for you. You've been inspired by what you've heard and possibly inspired to even go further into this topic on your own, to educate yourself about what's happening around the world and in specific hotspots, but also to understand how you might take part. So first of all, let me say thank you to you, to Richard, to Sazan and to Sylvia. Thank you for being part of this today. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your wisdom and insight with us. We are here again on June 3rd on the topic of how safe are digital safe spaces. And you can already register to join that through the ICS website in the digital debates section. On behalf of our wonderful three panelists and the International Civil Society Center, I'm Barbara Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.